podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It is the weekend. Neil Atkinson, John Gibbons, Alison McGovern, Melissa Reddy and Robbie O'Neill all with you for the next day. Probably totals an hour or so. We're going to be speaking to Michael Calvin. That's to come. Also going to be speaking to Rory Smith. That is also to come. Uh, Michael Calvin about his new book. Rory about an article he's written about Liverpool's throwing king. Uh, and we're going to be talking to Robbie about the film he's looking to crowdfund as well. The post-production part of it anyway. Uh, but we're going to start talking about what I see as a joint anniversary, Melissa Reddy. 12 months ago, this weekend in footballing terms, uh, Manchester City uh, beat Liverpool by five goals to nil uh, 11 months ago uh, Tottenham beat Liverpool by four goals to one and then it changed Unhappy anniversary <laughs> the absolute thing that you don't want to celebrate um, obviously the five nil you know the game changes when Sadio Mane gets red carded for something that I don't think anyone else has been red carded for since um, Are you annoyed about that? I see a lot of tweets on this, and one of the things that makes um, makes me wonder is if the, if it happened, and then the referees all got together and went, "That's a bit mad. Let's not do that again." And they sort of do get to. I mean, I'm the first to slag off the Mancunians, but they do sort of get to do that. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. Not annoyed by it, but it is. It's worthy just, of comment. Yeah, it is worth a comment. Um, and the four one, I thought probably the worst performance under Jurgen Klopp. Uh, for this Liverpool side, it was shocking, diabolical in a defensive sense. We all know that uh, Lovren had an absolute stinker, got pulled for it. But since then, no side has conceded less goals in Liverpool, not even Manchester City. And, you know, Virgil van Dijk gets credited with a lot of this, but Virgil van Dijk joins in January and from that game in October till the end of 2017, I think Liverpool kept something like eight clean sheets uh, and conceded, what, 15? From then till Boxing Day, uh, Van Dijk joins just after then he can't play. But the 14 games after Spurs till Boxing Day, Van Dijk, uh, when, and then he's confirmed Liverpool only conceded six goals. So they keep their eight clean sheets. They only conceded six, but in three, in two of them, they do concede three. Yeah, so one of the reasons why the, the, the severe game and the Arsenal game. Arsenal game, yeah, and exactly. One, that's one of the reasons, John, why the reputation sort of continued around Liverpool. But it is worth pointing out. I think it had changed. I think it changed. In terms of a conversation internally, that's been much discussed. In terms of maybe how the use of the personnel, in terms of approach, I think it changed. Yeah, I think so, and I think it's one of the things that that's phony. Yeah, Klopp is it? Oh, he's only interested in you know attacking football team going one way, which I find strange because he used to go mad about it all the time. Then the defensive stuff, and I think it's interesting that you that those two games you highlight because I think that's what. A lot of us are critical of, of of Liverpool fans is that the amount of times one goal became two goals. So we we can see the goal and lose our heads a bit, and then the next thing you know, you'd have another one, and that happened in in Seville and, and definitely I think Arsenal. We were well on top in that Arsenal game, and, and suddenly we can see a bit of a soft one. Mingle should save it, and then and then and then and then you know there's a, there's another goal from from nowhere. Although it's a it's a nice move, I think I remember, but I think that was our that was our. Um, you know, that was our annoyance, really. We had decent individual defenders, but the way the heads would go. And I think that's the biggest impact Van Dyke's had. I think you're right to both point out that actually, you know, individual defending got better and, and the way we were and, and the way we defended as a team, I think, and, and, and occupied space got better. But I think the main thing that Van Dyke's brought in is, is that calmness and that idea that if, you know, we're not, we're, we're not going to concede, but if we do, then we won't concede again. And, and just forget about it, get it out of your head, move on. Alison, one of the things that strikes me about this is that there's 
there's an argument that that spurs away defeat almost leads to the next phase of this club size. That teams are often forged in, in all walks of life, really, but teams, groups are often forged in defeat as much as in victory. Oh, for sure. And just looking back to that Spurs defeat, I think Klopp said at the time um, that, you know, he was almost taking responsibility for himself, that he hadn't coached the defenders in the right way. There was obviously like a massive switch in terms of personnel subsequently to that. But there seemed to be an acknowledgement that Klopp was saying, well, you know, really he'd not paid enough attention or had the right strategy. I think the other thing that Klopp does from that point is gives them options. So we had sort of, there'd been a sort of collective acceptance that we were like not so great at the back. And one by one means or another, Klopp manages to give them options so that when good teams work out how to handle us, we were able to change at the back. And I think that's that was definitely the point at which, you know, obviously being defeated 4-1 by people who in the end, whilst they're definitely our rivals, were not, you know, it, it's it's a bit of a mad world where Spurs win the league. So you're thinking, well, we, we can't be getting beat 4-1 by these. And that kicks off a kind of internal review that ends up with us, you know, at the Champions League final. There's, Robbie, there's something in in Klopp taking responsibility there that, that gets forgotten about in the aftermath now. We get to sort of praise him for the, the success that follows. But it, Alison's right to, 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 to chime on it. I remember saying after that game, that, that's it for Dejan Lovren, he's going to get bombed. That's it now, there's no yeah. way back, there can be no way back. And Klopp shoulders so much of that as if he's saying to his boys, you almost get the impression there might have been an internal conversation, which is, I'll take this one, but if there's another one, there's been that 5-0... There's the mitigating circumstances. There's been this one. I'll shoulder this one for all of you, but now we're all in this together. You've got to get serious. I totally agree. I remember being in the away end that day and looking about when Dejan Lovren missed a header and thinking, that's it, you had done in a Liverpool shirt. What I also think about Klopp taking responsibility, what that also sends out is a message to players looking at Liverpool going, there's a manager that if I mess up, He's going to get on side. I want to go and play for him. It's, it's it's a brilliant message to put across. And he did it publicly. Obviously, you don't know what he said in the dressing room. It could be a very different thing, yeah. as it often sure it is. Yeah. But then why would you not, as a manager, right? Because in the end, in you've got to take responsibility and be seen to take responsibility. Partly because so, of what you say, which is like, why would... Why would players really want to play for the sort of manager that balls them out in public? I never quite get that. Yeah, I think it all... It, it, I think it makes you want to go the extra mile as well. Um, I think the more enthusiastic you are, the more open you are to learning. And it's—I don't think it's any mistake that most players that go and play for Jurgen Klopp become better players. You know, very few of them go in the finished article. You go there, you get better, and you know it kicks on from there for them. I think it's a security thing as much as anyone, Alison. I think Jurgen Klopp's a manager is completely secure in his job and in himself. So a lot of that's internal to Jurgen in that. I just don't think he worries about a lot of things up to including getting the sack. So I don't think he'd, he'd be too worried anyway, but I think obviously Liverpool have created this situation where like, you're our man, we're, we're backing you 100%. And I don't think that's the case at other clubs. And I don't want to pick any on any particular individual or the managers, but I think they're at clubs where 
you know, I mean, we people see can, it. We see it. People can work that out themselves. <laughs> but even like, like you know, there, I mean, there's, there's insecure managers knocking about. But there's also, I mean, just because you, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. And a lot, of, most managers across the Premier League are only a bad month away from the sack. Yeah. And so like, we're saying, oh, you know, oh, you know, it, it's right what you said about management generally about well, why wouldn't you bail them out? But like. You know, you can bail them out and say, "Oh, yeah, it's my fault." And then, and then you got a chairman going, "Oh, right, is it?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's hard. It, it is hard this, for some people. So, but the same also applies to chairs and directors. It's like, yeah. well, you take responsibility. Oh no, chance. and then you'll get better managers want to come and work for you. Yeah, I, I think a big element of it is is actually the psychological factor, and Klopp's very big on mentality because as tactically brilliant and and technically good you can be and. All the organizational drills you do, if you don't believe in something wholeheartedly or if there's something else nagging away at you, you don't perform. And he spoke about Liverpool defensively as being the self-fulfilling prophecy that every time there was a set piece, because of all the talk around Liverpool Mm. and Liverpool have issues with defending set pieces and Liverpool have issues getting exposed because there are such an attacking team. So, you know, you can, you can counter them. And um, everything that was said about Dayan De- Lovren before he came in, that played on Lovren's mind. And he kept reinforcing the message that you have to block out all the voices from outside and concentrate on what we work on and what we do. And I think a lot of times players would find themselves playing the games in their head what they think is going to happen or what they're so fearful of happening that what was the game that was actually happening in front of them, they kept making the wrong decisions. And I think Spurs at Wembley is an example of, of Lovren in that get, playing it in his head to thinking of the worst case scenarios in, in everything and reacting to them before they even happen. And then they actually did become the worst case scenarios. And part of the, the shouldering responsibility is he, he believes it entirely that as the head of the club, in a football sense that he is responsible for everything that happens, he's the one who picks the players, Um, you know, he works on their shape and all that stuff. So something goes wrong, ultimately it's down to him. But also it is the thing of psychologically helping the players that, you know, you're going to make a mistake. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. We still need you for the rest of the season. I still see your qualities. I still know what you can offer. And I mean, Lovren goes from that to playing in the Champions League final and playing in a World Cup final and then saying that he's one of the best defenders in the world. But it's he believes that. And it, actually, look, you know that what? helps him play yes, well, it's, then it's he help, should believe yeah, that. It's helpful yeah. for him to believe that. Yeah. It's better him believing that than him believing he's a walking catastrophe. Yeah. That's what Bobby says before you go on stage, isn't it, mate? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, um, you know, also, it's a marked contrast to, contrast to a manager like Jose Mourinho, who's publicly digging his players out on a weekly basis. I mean, I remember Luke Shaw was in bits yeah. for quite a long time because every time he put a foot wrong, Mourinho was just going straight at him. Um, Pogba. Pogba, just oh, yeah. once, once away it's, now. And... It's just, it, there's a marked contrast, and I think you know, in many ways, it's it's more it's more impressive to see that Liverpool are doing as well as they are with Klopp being as positive as he is. This this game this weekend, John, I wonder, wonder, just wonder if this is the start of almost the the Klopp phase four. So there's 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 where he first arrives, then there's sixteen seventeen pretty much as a whole. Liverpool start very strongly, kick on. 
fade as the season wears on, uh, but get over the line in terms of the, the prime objective. And then you can maybe extend that period, the slight struggles up until that Spurs game last season, which takes us through until the start of this campaign. And I sort of wonder if this is Saturday morning, is, is, is there's a possibility it's the start of the the very serious business Liverpool. Already got 12 points on the board, had to scrap for them, but not really hit the heights. Now it's the, the idea of going to Tottenham, Maybe a bit of a statement, whether in performance or results. Ideally, we'd say both. But if we are going to be the ones who challenge Manchester City, it's worth pointing out Manchester City battered Tottenham home and away last season. They played them off the park. Yeah, it's look. We all know it's a big period. Every every bit of Liverpool media you, you see or read or this this week has, has sort of been about it. And Saturday's big, but I don't want us to sort of lose our heads too much if it doesn't go great because. You know, the, the games come thick and fast and you can't sort of feel sorry for yourselves. You've got to remember the Tottenham are a good team. They've got a, a couple of issues and, and injuries and things like that. But, you know, as, as you know, you've always got, got something, I guess. But, you know, they, they are a good team and they did batter us last year and they have finished above us, what, eight of the line last, at nine last seasons or something. I think we'll finish ahead of them this year. But that's not to say it isn't one of our toughest games. So, look, I'm confident going there because I always am. But if it doesn't go right, we need to... You know, we, we just all need to kind of keep our heads really and remember that there's 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 a lot of big games and, and you need to bounce back because one one bad result can't become two or three. But as I say, I am confident and on this one of games though it'd be interesting to it'd be interesting to know. Look, if Jürgen was here, he'd say I'm I'm already focused on Tottenham, but as he as he laid them all out, has he gone? Does he know where Fabinho gets his first half, for example? Does he know what he's doing with his midfield and thinking, well, have I got five and, and who who do I like to use with who and when am I going to use them? And the forward line, when are we going to see Shakiri? Has he got a storage move in him, you know, not just in the League Cup, but maybe one of the home, home to Southampton or something? I'd be fascinated to know as a manager, like how much, because, you know, he might, he might adapt, but how much of it this next two months is kind of, is, is laid out, how much have they, have they gone into the, the bunker or the old, old boot room or whatever and, and kind of plotted it or, or, or is he just one game at a time? I don't know, I can't answer it, but I'd love to, I'd love to find out. Yeah, I think it is fascinating. And is he is he prioritising competitions? Yeah. I mean, there's a bit of me that just that doubts it because I think, you know, he needs, doesn't need, but like wants obviously to win something. And, yeah. And at this stage, you know, I think if we won the League Cup, we'd all go completely crazy. Right? Like, it would just be like so much fun. I wouldn't really care what it was. Although, obviously, that's also completely not true. But the point is, I think if I was them... I would be trying to lay it out and work work all of those things out. I think strategically, you've got to give people enough time to build up that confidence. I think they've got to start getting people on the pitch. It would, wouldn't surprise me if he had those conversations with players. Yeah. Because that's about trust, isn't it? Not keeping people hanging on to well, know. Well, they seem very relaxed. Shakiri's come out today and said, like, I'm not worried about my game time which either shows he's got a lot of confidence in himself, which we know he has, but also maybe suggests that he's had some sort of reassurance. Yeah, I mean, that I that that would be my... I mean, Mel, you'd know a lot a lot more, but that would be my guesstimation, yeah. that, that's, that they do have those conversations with he's players. He's also publicly said so often, I mean, from the, the season preview, even before a ball was kicked, he said there's going to be lots of games and we're going to need our squad. So if you're not playing at the start, don't lose your heads. Your, your chance is coming. It's very, very difficult. I mean, you obviously look at the fixture list and, and they'll start to think about, you know, rest periods and and how many days are involved and stuff like that. But planning for who starts and 
who's going to get a game where it's so difficult because so much can happen in one 90 minutes to affect yeah. the next three 90 minute spells that you're going to play. And so if you get tied into a plan and if you start telling players a plan and something happens and that plan is then broken completely. Yeah. And you, then you've got you, like internationals complicating stuff left, yeah. right and centre. But then you have to like start from scratch in, in getting the buy-in from the players and explaining and telling them why this plan is going to work. And if you're continuously doing that because things keep changing, you know, injuries or the opposition might have an injury that affects who you were deciding, you know, is going to start. You can't continuously be shifting your plans to players. Um, So, you know, when he says, take one game at a time, focus on what's in front of you, that is the actual best way to do it. You can have all the other things in your head about rest periods and stuff like that, but you can only control what's right in front. It's football is, and, and we know from even covering it, how unpredictable it can mm. be. You can have content ready to go. And <laughs> for six or seven reasons out of nowhere, you can't let it go. So, uh, yeah, you know. And that's annoying enough when it's just content. I know. Neil got done by Deli Ali news, news today, didn't you? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I got done by that news in, in, a, in a big way as well. But um, I think what's interesting about this game is that traditionally... Tottenham have been seen as the well-organized, defensively drilled team. When you think about Tottenham, you know, they restrict their opponents' shots on target, hardly concede, very strong backline, settled backline. But that hasn't been the case from the back end of last season. And they've struggled at the start of the season. And you can see him tinkering between the back three and the back and a back four because he's trying to firefight mm. a problem because they're conceding a lot of goals down their right-hand side. But not only that, their midfield have not, I think, helped their, their fullbacks enough. Um, and then when you look at Liverpool, the side that was always getting the finger pointed at it for you know, for not being defensively solid. Liverpool are quite a unit now. Mm-hmm. And everywhere, you know, that midfield's got steel. Joe Gomez has been exceptional alongside Virgil van Dijk. And Alisson, OK, the only goal Liverpool c- conceded come from his mistake. But the way he's reacted to it and the authority he brings uh, makes Liverpool a really, really completely different proposition that Tottenham last face. Okay, uh, we'll have more of that to come uh, from Mel. Uh, that is to come later on, and not just from Mel. Uh, I am indeed fascinated by the fact that Spurs are seen as solid, whereas they are constantly tinkering around the edges of what it is that they do. We'll talk about that in a little while. Uh, Ferguson, by the way, used to tell the whole of his side the first half of the season who'd be playing when, where and why. Uh, and then if it changed, if you didn't get selected when you were meant to be, it would be explained to you exactly what you'd done wrong in order to <laughs> jeopardise the plan. Uh, <laughs> we are going to come back in a minute or two, and we are going to be speaking to Michael Calvin. Don't go anywhere. One of these ones where I go for a trip down to London and have a big chat with someone I made up to have Michael Calvin uh, talking about his new book, State of Play, Under the Skin of the Modern Game. Uh, it says on the front, three-time British Sports Book Award winner. Uh, I think I've read all the books and I think this could be your best one. What do you think? Oh, that's very nice of you to say so and I can't really speak too much because I'm blushing. But um, no, listen, I, uh, I'm really pleased with it. It's more personal than usual. A uh, bit of a homage to my dad. Yeah. And also to Arthur Hopcroft. Uh, the link is uh, my dad um, was a cable jointer's mate on the local electricity board. 
came home one day when I was 13 with two books that he'd scavenged from an empty house. Uh, one was a glossary of the 1945 Parliament, where that informed my social and political beliefs, you know, benevolent socialism and all that. And um, The Football Man by Arthur Hopcraft basically set me off in this sort of 40-odd-year tap dance that I've been doing through sports journalism. Um, it was just a true inspiration to me. Um, you mentioned there it being a really personal book. One of the things I took from it is it moves around you, you, you shift from talking about players to talking about managers to talking about teams to talking about the wider sort of participant, the body politic. But the through line is that that morality that underpins your principles throughout this. That's the thing I took from it. I, I was reading it and thinking, you know, this could it could feel like it's sprawling, but it's not, because you're bringing it back all the time to to the, the decency you want to see, not just in the game, but also in the wider world. Uh, true. I, you know, what I try to do, Neil, really, is, is to express the issues that are challenging the game, um, which is you know, concussion, mental health, racism, um, Brexit, Britain, all this stuff, uh, and I basically address those issues through the eyes and experiences of people who are dealing with those on a daily basis. And so it's almost a natural consequence that you're expressing your uh, view, if you like, through the prism of, of the humanity of the game, the people. And I think that's what we lose sight of far too often. In the sort of, you know, the cavalcade that is modern football, it's all about the politics is all about the money, it's all about the bling, it's the superficiality. Actually, football is and will remain a game of flesh and blood. And to give you a very small example of it, and it's a pertinent one for Liverpool, I probably fell in love with football at the quarterfinal of the FA Cup in 1970. I was an 11-year-old um, ball boy at Watford. And Watford beat Liverpool... 1-0, uh, a header by a guy called uh, Barry Endine, journeyman player, ended up as a, a, um, a welder in uh, Chester Le Street. Um, that 1-0 win over Watford, this little team, um, accelerated the breakup of the first great Shanky team. And it was, to me, I looked around me as a ball boy there, everyone is going nuts, but it was this sense of a community celebrating something of itself through these unheralded, very you know, un- almost underpaid footballers who were just representing the community. So part of the book is, is the search for that human link, for that umbilical cord between a football club and its community. What are the, the parts of that, when you say it is flesh and blood, what are the parts that comes through the book is the very, and I maintain this as well when people talk about what we do or what I'm lucky enough to do, the very strong reality of the grass and the 22 people on the grass, 23 if you include the referee, but the 22 people on the grass who tend to be young men between the age of 20 and 30 who you're incredibly, and I would say rightly, affectionate about in the book, that they, these young men, for all the money, in those moments, they remain, in essence, unchanged as to the way they always have been. The ordinary young men in an extraordinary environment and so if you look at the modern football, I use Deli Alley as the example in the book, they're, they're in a strange contradictory position. At one hand, they are completely overexposed through social media and everything that, you know, the madness that goes around the game now. But on the other hand, they're utterly isolated because these young men, when they become successful, walls are built around them. 
by PRs, by agents, by sponsors, by clubs. So in one way, because of that isolation, we never really get to see the truth behind it. Now, you know, at Liverpool, you're looking at, you know, people like you know, uh, Andy Robertson and, and Trent coming out and talking about their social interactions, if you like, which I think is really, really important. But it's also on a basic human level. So, for instance, with Delhi, the chapter there starts with him. Um, uh, it was a story of a mutual friend of ours, Simon uh, Edwards, who was a behavioural specialist from uh, Harley, uh, Harley Street. He had helped me on my previous book, um, No Hunger in Paradise, where he spent a day at my home just trying to explain the psyche of the young player. Yeah. And um, he helped Delhi an awful lot um, in the early days uh, at, at Milton Keynes, but also as fame consumed him, he was having difficulty sleeping, so Simon helped in that area. Now, what we didn't know is that Simon had been diagnosed with terminal cancer three and a half years ago. And the prognosis was that he had uh, he would survive for a year. Well, he survived until uh, January of this year, and about ten days before he passed, he called Carl Robinson and asked basically to see Delhi and another player, Benikafobe, for the last time. So they went to see him in the hospice. And there you've got this vision of the young man, this garlanded footballer, Delhi Ali, who actually to the outside person is quite brittle and quite turbulent and quite flash, so he's, he's basically booed. Yet here's this young man talking about his future and his ambitions uh, to the dying man, but also laughing, all of them laughing at the absurdity of football. So, for instance, Simon uh, was working with a, an international centre forward who said, don't talk to my face. You have to address me through my football boot. You literally have to talk at my boot. <laughs> because the, his, his rationale was, talk to the boot because that is my method of communication with the outside world. That is the thing that makes me score the goals, which gives me the contract, which enables me to look after my family. So they were having this sort of, you know, uh, very strange uh, situation, you know, typical football, you know, laugh through the pain in, in a sense. Yeah. And... Um, I saw Delhi after the funeral and, you know, he said, look, playing football is the easy bit. When I play for Tottenham or I play for England, I just tell myself, you're playing the game you played as a kid. It's just everything else that is hard and difficult. And he said, look, I am 21 years old. I make stupid mistakes. I do stupid things. And so, and so he was then talking about the issues of, you know, do, who do I trust? How do I behave? What does that person want from me or of me? So, you know, he's on the back foot all the time and in that circle that we talked about, about, you know, the walls being built around him. So what I wanted to try and do in that is to show people that, look, they're flesh and blood. These people are just like the kid you would see in the park. They just happen to be extremely good at one thing in their life. Did you find the book? You you, you enter the book in writing it. You're very very open about the fact that you know you've you've seen the game change. There's elements of you know you you, you put over your own cynicism towards lots of aspects of the game. The same cynicism that lots of us share at times. Mm. Did you find the exercise of writing the book alleviated part of that cynicism? Was there was there a moment there where you remember thinking, no, you know what, this is this is still the game. Yes, you know, I, I wouldn't like to think that people would read the book and think it was relentlessly negative. Or it very like. much isn't. No, because I, you know, I, I do think, 
you know, what I've tried to do is highlight good things doing good people, uh, good people doing good things in unheralded ways. Um, so, for instance, someone like uh, there's a lad called Tajayan Hutton, 25 years old, you know, the most mature 25 year old I've ever met, working literally in the shadow of Wembley Stadium. We live in a society which is basically, you know, because of austerity, youth budgets have been slashed. Um, the things that, that the social glue, if you like, has been taken away. It's now you can't afford the glue. People like him is a glue. So, for instance, he, he is running something called a corner league, which in essence uh, is a football league between rival gangs. The deal is you don't bring weapons. And so you've got then football being this, as I said, social glue where you, you see people making the most of themselves and it might be, you know, and it is to a degree artificial because if those, you know, team A playing team B, if member of team A saw team B on the street, yeah. they get the knives out. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a respite, but I think it's an important respite. And it's just saying, look, there are people out there. There's a guy called Clasford Sterling who has worked on the Broadwater Farm Estate for 38 years running a football academy he's, he's sort of pushed about 100 boys through to the professional game in, a, in an area which in a way has become stigmatised by you know, the riots and the death of PC Blakelock and so you know, again here's another unheralded man doing something through football for his common man and I, I think that's laudable it's a marvellous book. It's called State of Play. It is a marvellous book. I often say when you do these things, sometimes you're going to interview someone and there's nothing worse than if you don't like the book. Uh, the reality is I absolutely adored it. It's full of bubbling ideas, decency, honesty, humour, loads and loads of good jokes in there. So many interesting people Michael's gone and met and has represented for you to show the way in which the game is now. It is most definitely not a cynical book. It's a book that's basically full of love and it's very much full of care. Great to speak to Michael, and his book is The Business. Uh, you very much put up with me having a cold there as well, so thank you very much to him. But it was fantastic to sit down. And there's also, for those of you who don't subscribe to Tour Player but might think about doing so, or those of you who do, uh, there's a 40-minute chat of me and Michael about his book, State of Play. I could not recommend it highly enough, in all honesty. So if you do get the opportunity to pick it up, please do do so. You can just go to his publisher's website, which is Penguin, and you go follow it through in there, and there's four or five different ways to buy. Uh, it is called State of Play. It is The Business. After this break, I'm talking to Rory Smith about the article he's written in the New York Times about Liverpool's new throw in person but also the knock-on effect of people doing things that are a little bit different and distinctive and how it manages to put certain noses out of joint at all times uh, that's coming up me and Rory in a second Reds bet the Anfield apps partners in 2018 and I'm with Paul Senior to talk about their offers for this weekend we're partnering with Reds bet if you select which nominated Liverpool related cause you would like 50% of your losses their profits to go back into that would be fantastic if you haven't selected please do go back to your account and do so uh, the sooner the better uh, if gambling's not for you absolutely no problem at all this is not about finding new people to gamble uh, we want everyone to be gamble aware that's be gamble aware.org um, oh on the constantly moving conversation most seller to win player of the year uh, it's now nine to one on Reds Bet. It's been six, Paul, um, and it's now sits itself at nines. Um, I've switched the wrong microphone on, so feel free to run around onto the one that is the correct one. Uh, coolly done. What do you think about Mo Salah at nine to one for Player of the Year? It's it's one of them where it's worth a punt. I don't think he wins it back to back. Um, I wouldn't. What's money? Uh, well, I, he's not on this list because ah. these are boosted odds. Kite is sixteens. That's interesting. That's interesting. I, 
I think I think someone who's going to score someone will score lots of goals this season, and I think that is the eventual winner. I wonder whoever wins the Golden Boot is the winner. My thing is, I don't fancy Mo Salah for the Golden Boot. That being said, we're only what four four games in, so four games in. I think it all changes <clears throat> now post this international break. I just want to see Mo in a bit of form. You know, he misses misses a couple of pens for, for Egypt. Obviously, slots the rebound on one of them. Something something doesn't seem like it's clicked just yet but I don't doubt it will at one point it will at one point uh, for this game against I like this one uh, for this game against uh, Tottenham he's 11-1 to one to score a header <laughs> that's a bit of a yeah I mean not not natural but he's a goal scorer it's, it's that's one, why I like it yeah, I like yeah. the idea that if there's something to sniff out he'll sniff it out my yeah. only thing on it is he doesn't take he, he takes the odd corner so that does that but the idea that Mo's sniffing something out would not surprise me and I can see a lot of back post runs from Mo Salah against Tottenham yeah Liverpool can pull you apart it's only going to take someone to lift a ball for that to look like quite good value yeah I'd be all over that be all over that uh, another one 7-1 to one, Liverpool to score a penalty yeah well, absolutely why not um, I'd I, I quite fancy quite fancy them odds if you're telling me James Milner's taking the penalty um, <laughs> yeah so yeah maybe not Mo Salah if you're going to get me a Mo Salah penalty you might want 10s um, alright next one uh, is uh, the next one I like is Liverpool to win 2-1-3-1 or 4-1 16-5 so mm. it's effectively Liverpool to win but concede yeah well uh, my prediction for the game's 2-1 16-5 Give me, give me that, Neil. What's sixteen to five? That's better than three to one. Yeah, all over that. All over that. I, I will be all over that. All, all will be all over that. Are better than three to one. All those done his picks. All those picks are hysterical. So all those picks for the weekend: Chelsea, Man United, and Everton all to win. Solid. I Cheers, mean, John. Yeah, thanks very much, John. Yeah, um, yeah. Fancy the fancy the top six to do well this season. There's an element to that, but also it's the fact that he always pick, he always bets against Liverpool in a sense. He always bets on Liverpool. He always picks managers to pick Liverpool's rivals to get results. Aldo on Reds bet. I'm absolutely made up with him because the thing is, the thing about all those picks is Aldo was all in on them himself that's the sort of fella he is so he's not he very much if Aldo's picking it he's putting his money behind it himself <laughs> yeah. so he's gone nah those three fair, fair enough John I mean ours is a, very, a really tight one this weekend isn't it Tottenham's a, a difficult game so is it, Liverpool Tottenham's not a game I'd, I feel comfortable betting on so what are we talking Chelsea are at uh, who's Chelsea got this weekend I've managed to completely lose that let me find that out for you right now uh, this weekend Chelsea Man United, Man Chelsea United, are at home against Cardiff Man United are away at Watford, Watford. and Everton are at home against West Ham yeah it's a, it's a good bet um, it is a good it's, bet it's a well in all 15-4 we'll not laugh at you too much uh, oh huge uh, 45-1 to one for Liverpool to beat Tottenham and Man United and Everton both to lose Man United and Everton both to lose. So Man United are Everton have got a lot of injuries. Uh, Man United are playing a team that are four and four, and Liverpool to beat Tottenham. Liverpool to beat Tottenham. It's feasible. What's that for? Forty-five to one. It's not bad, that is it? Yeah, put a tenner on that. No problem. Uh, not bad at all. Uh, so if you would like to uh, get involved with Reds Bet, it's RedsBet.com. Uh, there's more prices than just that on there, and obviously there's more stuff than just Liverpool-related stuff. There's loads and loads going on. As we keep saying on this segment, it's not about trying to find new people to gamble, but if you do like to have a gamble around your football, any over the weekend, or not even football, there's horse racing, tennis, golf, etc., etc. It's, it's the Ryder Cup this weekend. Uh, I never know when the Ryder Cup is. I'm always behind on everything. Um, the 28th, 28th of September. Um, whatever it is you fancy, if you're the sort of person who enjoys it, feel free to do so with Reds Bet. And if it isn't for you, as I keep saying, that is absolutely fine as well. Let's get back over. Joined by Rory Smith, always a pleasure, never a chore. Uh, and joined by him to talk about a piece he's written for the New York Times today, uh, which is where he does all his writing these days, to be honest with you. And it is about, or at least it starts with the idea of Thomas Gronmark. Uh, Thomas Gronmark, Liverpool's throw-in coach. But it becomes a much bigger and broader piece than that. 
the first thing, Rory, is it's it was it was all vaguely dispiriting, really, and it's all the usual suspect, but it was all vaguely dispiriting the 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 the, the well, I'm going to say quality, but I mean the opposite of the discourse around this from Liverpool in that, you know, surely the business of football teams is to try to find any way in which they can improve and then go about improving their players. Yeah, I found it really, I found it really odd, to be honest. I, mean, I know you shouldn't be disappointed or surprised by this because it's what happens whenever anyone comes up with anything that sounds vaguely new is that people whose experience in the game didn't include that decide that actually that, that, that because they didn't experience it, it must be irrelevant. Um, and that, that happens with basically everything. Donald Markin, squad rotation, signing foreign players. And after a while, they're proven to be dinosaurs and we all move on with our lives. But it, I think in this case, it just seems so obvious that, of course, you would try and improve your throw-ins. I'm a little bit surprised, I guess, by the fact that no one's really thought of it before. Because surely you should want to practice every element of being a professional footballer. And my dad, as it goes, always got really annoyed when, by people like Ryan Diggs because he didn't understand how Ryan Diggs had spent 20 years playing at the top of the game and never thought, I might practice on my right foot today. And it's, and it's true. I mean, how, how one-footed most players are is, is kind of inexcusable. They should be practicing on both feet to get the left or the right up to the same time as the, the natural foot, because that is a competitive advantage to be two-footed. And it's the same with throw-ins. It's, there's 40 or 50 a game. They can be really important, both defending and attacking. Um, there's... A, According to Thomas Gronemark, there's studies done that show you know goals come at certain percentages of the time from possession lost at throw-ins or whatever. Um, the example he always cites apparently is the 2011 Champions League final when a bad Eric Abidal throw led to Manchester United's goal. So it happens at the highest level. He said it's the it's the only aspect of the game that he thinks is the same in the Champions League as it is in in the ninth tier of professional football, and that's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. You wouldn't expect that of any other aspect of football. So why on earth would you expect it to throw in? I think we, there's, I mean, one of the things that strikes me about this as well is that, you know, there's so much, there's so many examples, great examples, to be honest with you, of of the use of throw-ins from sides lower down, certainly lower down the pecking order. Obviously, there's the infamous Stoke Delap sort of thing. But, you know, I, I still remember the glory days and they were indeed glory days of Dave Challoner. And this, for me, felt yeah. like the most agricultural of art forms, and but was no less, <laughs> no, no less useful for that. And so to see the sort of the, the 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 people who are determined to cast themselves as the real football men, be the ones who are pouring the scorn on it to me is, is it just seems it's almost as though it, it, it's it's they doth protest too much moment for me as though they've, they've just got to find the scorn for everything, and that this is now a really good example of well this is us now this is us just making it clear to you that whatever it is if it feels as though it's in any way shape or form a bit and I use this word advisedly poncy we are going to decide that we're going to say that it's just ridiculous and and to me it just does seem like yeah the the if their true colours weren't crystal clear their true colours now really are. Well, I think it, yeah, you're right. It's, and it's, it, I'd love to see a Venn diagram of, of the people who criticise the idea of a throwing coach and people who feel Tony Pulis and Sam Allardyce should have had a chance at a bigger club. Because I'm guessing that that's just kind of one big circle. Yeah. But I, I, yeah, I, I guess to them it, it's kind of it's serial cafes and you know bit emojis, isn't it? It's stuff that they don't understand as it, it's of a new generation. But I just it's the principle I think that really annoys me that. Obviously, you should want to improve. You should surely look at that and think that's actually quite a good idea to try and practice your throw-ins. You can maybe find it a bit odd, and I think most people probably would, that you can make an entire career out of just coaching throw-ins. And that's why I tried to speak to more 
to more specialist coaches? Is it something you, you actually encounter just talking to people around football, the kind of, in inverted commas, the football people who don't necessarily have a kind of defined role or job but kind of work within the football? But there are lots of them now who who are who are consultants who are in, in the media you call freelance and that you know they do they do bits and bobs of work for different clubs on different aspects of recruitment or analysis or, or whatever and it, it's I think it's it's because clubs are becoming more aware that there are more edges to find and that has to be a good thing and I just yeah I find that the reaction predictable but still quite sad and it's the same as when you hear people talk about oh I'm not really a stat guy and you think oh. 2018, yes, you, you can't not be a stats guy. But the league table stats, not- you are a stats guy. I mean, it, it, your question's more where your line is on a stats guy thing. And as you say, yeah. now internally in football clubs, but also again there as an example, they're real football people. Well, Allardyce is massively a stats guy. One of the first yeah. things he did was he became a stats guy. Well, what's the, so, so if you're not a stats guy, is that, are you rejecting the Brexit referendum because 52 to 48, well, I'm not really a stats guy. doesn't really matter. It's, I mean, it's just, an, it's an, it's an, it's a bizarre thing to say. Like, yeah, I mean, this data and these facts, that's fine, but they're, they're just not for me. Not for, it, it makes no sense to me at all, but within football, and I'm sure in lots of other areas of life, it does seem to kind of have this real sticky quality that people seem to... And I, I, think, I think you're completely right, and it's something that I guess a lot of us write around or, or talk around a bit around the bush. Basically, it's anything that seems a bit poncy, people just re- reject automatically without even pausing to consider it. And it is interesting that but it is this kind of same constituency of people who would consider the long throw kind of an unnecessarily scorned or condemned type of, of style who are thinking, well, this is ridiculous. You should coach the long throw. And it's, yeah, it's almost so bizarre. It's quite hard to kind of put it into words. But the, th- the other thing I should say is that Gronemark's work is not just on long throws. No. It's, it's on what he calls fast and clever throws as well. And that, I think, is a really interesting area that, this is something that happens a lot every game. And we've all seen bad throwing. And all fans get annoyed by bad throwing. So why on earth would you not want your players to be to, to think, right, we've got to throw in. This can be a really promising situation, especially at a time when when counter-attacking is so important. That is a, a point at which a team has a natural chance to counter-attack reasonably the, often every game. The, why not make the most of it? The fast part is the part that grabbed me. The fast part is the intriguing part, I think. Because one of the... One of the the frustrations of supporting Liverpool um, is watching lots and lots of ponderousness over restarts. Now, and that and it's perfectly valid, by the way. Referees have got to get a grip of it, but I can understand opposition ponderousness over restart because the one thing you want to do, if you're a certain level of side, is stop the ball being in play as much as possible because it means that Liverpool are less likely to hurt you. That's an argument, and it's one I can get behind. Where it is frustrating as a Liverpool sort of someone who wants to see Liverpool do well, Rory is is when you're watching Liverpool be ponderous over restarts, and and throw-ins are a prime example of that. They happen much more often than goal kicks. One of the things I want is the idea that as soon as the ball goes outside the white lines, Liverpool are just ready, waiting, and know exactly how they're bringing it back into play. And I think that there's there's, there's absolutely nothing to apologise for in that. I just think that's sheer common sense. Well, yeah, so I think a lot of what the, the work he does is not just on kind of improving the technique of the throwers, but I think he talks to the, the rest of the team about their movement, about their positioning, yeah. about their running. And I agree with you. Like, you wouldn't... Teams wouldn't dream of going into a game without a few plans from corners and, and free kicks and thinking, right, this is how we're going to set up to deal with this corner or to approach this free kick. A throw-in is exactly the same. It's exactly the same. It's a dead ball. It's a restart. You should have almost set moves to, to kind of work through when you have throw-ins in certain areas, and you have to change them quite frequently as the, 
as the opposition got wise to them. But I, I don't see why you wouldn't you wouldn't treat it exactly. I don't see why you would think it was just a throw in. Let's just let's just keep the ball in play. Let's take the Andy Gray approach. Let's just throw it to one of our own players and pat ourselves on the back. You wouldn't do that with anything else. Um, but I think, do you know what? And this is maybe me overreaching now um, through permanent tiredness. But I wonder whether part of the reason people think it's a bit naff, for want of a better word, and a less 80s word, is because it kind of ruins the, the spontaneity of the game. That it's, it's suggesting that things can be planned out and football is actually a much more staccato experience than we think it is. That it's not all just these great artists going out and being incredibly sort of imaginative in the moment, that they are actually just enacting things that they do in training no, no more than rugby or American football. I think maybe some people resent that a little bit, kind of don't want to admit it. But yeah, I agree with you. I think taking the fast and the clever thing is, is really interesting because fast obviously is, is reacting quickly and seeing things early, which is a difficult thing to train. Clever, according to Mark, is much more to do with when you're in a tight position. And the reason all things are pondered over throwing is because often everyone's marked. I used to find it impossible to take a throw in when I was playing, admittedly, Sunday League. Not, you know, I wasn't doing fast or clever or long throws. But <laughs> it's, like, everyone's marked. It's, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard to choose slow, to throw it to. And I think, slow, stupid I and think short things, was your genre of throwing. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, so I think that's why Liverpool, even though the rest of the style is, is, is really quick and kind of, and, you know, at this sort of hyper speed. I think at throw-ins, it probably, it's a great level of it because every, everyone's marked. So it's tough to find a route out. And I think that's what Gronemark works on is, is teaching players what to do in those situations where everybody is under pressure and you don't want to lose the ball. And I think for a team like Liverpool, that's really important because with a throw-in, there is the chance that you lose the ball to a, a lesser team who then knock it in the box and score from a header, which can happen to anybody. It can happen to any team, however good they are. So you need to avoid those situations as much as possible and maximise the opportunities you have with throwing. I, I suspect, I mean, we've seen the Joe Gomez long throw, the Gomez transformation into Challoner and Delap. But I think as m- more of the work than anything will be being done on making sure Liverpool make the most of throw-ins rather than just try and survive them. On just one, one more thing before I let you go, I want to just pull back that idea of people don't want to think of attacking moves. So a throw-in is a possession-based move. They don't want to think of those being synchronised. We've sort of, I think, I think you're absolutely spot on about that. We've accepted the set play around the corner and the free kick, but one of the things that strikes me is, for instance, we. As, 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 a, as an entire discourse around football, we are furious if sides are not organised defensively. We are absolutely livid about mm-hmm. it. That's one of the first things that gets said. They're just not organised. The communication's not right. Look where the line is. Look where he is. Of course they conceded a goal from this situation. It was always going to happen because they did this. One of the things that strikes me here is that Guardiola and Klopp, to just use those two, we know, we've got evidence that they work a great deal on synchronised, blind, attacking movements, that footballers should be where we want them to be in an attacking phase. And that is something that I think people are suspicious of, that that, that is almost as though you are coaching the brilliance and spontaneity out of footballers. And I do think you might be right that that might be one of the things that's ticking away in people's minds here. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. The, the, I think if you look at coaches like, like Klopp and Pochettino and Guardiola, Sarri now at Chelsea, they coach attacking movement in a way that maybe coaches of the previous generation, like Mourinho, whose approach has always been kind of be organised defensively and then the flair players will, will take care of things in the final third. Um, that They don't. And I, I think that's something that goes back years and years and years to, to the risk of something old Jonathan Wilson 
Valery Lobanovsky at Dynamo Kiev famously had kind of zones that he wanted players to run in and train the players with the use of some sort of room-sized computer to, to be in specific areas when the ball was in certain zones, which is a, that's quite a rugby idea or an American football idea, but it, it works and is just as, just as applicable in football. Um, but I don't think it speaks to our prejudices of how the game should be played. We are brought up on this, this kind of romance of, of the imaginative number 10 and the, 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 the ball-sniffing number 9 who just magically knows how to be in the right position. Of course, they don't magically know how to be in the right position any more than a central defender magically knows how to be in the right position. You have to be taught where to go and reminded where to go, and that has to change depending on who you're playing with. So they, they, they do have to coach them. It's just not something I think that, that people like thinking about, and that's partly because all those great attacking teams, including Liverpool, that we want to think that they are... It's, it's something kind of mystical that's happened, but it's not. It's, it's just as much a kind of mechanical process as as being really resolute defensively. It just doesn't kind of, that doesn't capture the imagination quite so much so people, I guess, resist it. Okay. Always good to speak to Rory. I will speak to him. As he keeps writing interesting things through the season, I, I, you've got no intention of stopping writing interesting things, have you? Uh, uh, hopefully not. No, I'd, I'd probably get in quite a lot of trouble if I, if I did. Uh, but, you know, obviously suggestions are welcome. Uh, suggestions are welcome um, wow uh, who knew uh, don't take that as an open invitation on the Twitter eh? uh, anyway uh, a pleasure to speak to Rory as ever uh, let's get back and let's uh, we're going to chat to Robbie O'Neill next I've got the list in front of me it is the weekend and always fabulous to speak to Rory uh, enjoyed that hugely uh, we've got Robbie O'Neill in uh, who goes and watches Liverpool and has a fantastic time doing so and John's you've known him for a while haven't you yes, yes. <laughs> you know everyone well Robbie's in the hair we're massive so oh, is he? yeah yeah, yeah. What are yeah. you, one of your South End people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Leafy suburbs. <laughs> all that sort of stuff. <laughs> wide the lanes. roads are wide and yeah. the, um, you know, the sun's shining and all that. Uh, all right, well, we'll not hold it against you, Robbie. And <laughs> we will uh, we will have a, have a chat about about the film. So you've worked on a short film. I have, yeah. It's shot? Yeah, yeah. Were you good at it? I hope so. <laughs> I do hope so. <laughs> it looks all right, like, you know, we'll see. But it's early indications are that it could be quite special, but... You know, I don't want to. I don't want to. Don't want to put me those tinted glasses on or nothing like that. But it looks good. Well, I think that's part of it's part of working on projects the way in which actors do. I think it's something that gets missed actually at times. That you know, just before we even get onto the other stuff, mm. I you know, I haven't I haven't worked around with actors. There's a massive leap of faith, isn't there? Really, first and foremost, in that you do just sort of go away, you shoot this stuff, you get to read the script, you get to see who else is yeah. doing it, but you very much got to trust everyone's gonna do the jobs properly, yeah. not just on set, but then when it does come to post production, you yeah. you put your life in people's hands in a sense. Totally, you, it's a a lot of it's about trust, you know, particularly yeah. about this. I mean, I, I was trying to get this off the ground for close to five years, you know, and it went through God knows how many producers, God knows how many drafts. Um, I think we had like three directors before <laughs> before uh, Phil Barantini got on board. And it, it was a very personal story for me as well. So it, 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 it felt like it was a long time coming. And I know a lot of actors that, you know, I think there's a statistic that at any one time, 90% of actors are out of work, which is staggering. But... So I think it's it's imperative that you go away and you make your own work, um, particularly if if you're like in one of the less represented groups, like as, as working class people most definitely are. And um, one of the first things I did when I left drama school was, you know, start making my own stuff. And this was, I think this was the first thing I wrote when I got out. So yeah. It's, 
But then you need to find the director. And that's what I'm yeah. getting. That's, this, this is that that can be the terrifying part. Is mm. that I mean, even just me from the writing side? You know, at times the idea of putting the written word into the. I mean, I've met, I've had some meetings with directors where I've come out afterwards and wanted to throw myself into the river. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> uh, and, and I work closely with Dan. Uh, that's a, <laughs> a joke. Uh, Dan, um, that you know that can happen to you. It is. You have still got to have that. You've got to have that trust. You've got to be able to pass it over. You've got to be able to trust the editor. You've got to let the editor go and do the edit. That's what a lot of this this fundraising you're trying to do is about: is let the editor edit. Totally, yeah. Um, we are pulling favors left, right, and centre to get this film finished. But still, we need to raise like quite a large amount of money mm-hmm. to get it get it anywhere near where we want it to be. Um, we've got we've got an editor on board, and he's doing rough edits, and it's sort of like you know, on the never never. But um, yeah, it, it, it there's a lot of it's there's a lot of time that goes into writing emails to people you may never have met and saying, yeah. "Look, I've written this film. It's about this. I've got these people involved. Can you do me a massive favor? And can you help?" And you know <laughs> that, that that in itself, you know, some people might think it's cheeky, and I suppose it is. But if you don't ask, you don't get. The film's a short film which touches upon mental health issues within young men uh, based around boxing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's something you said before, you know, you've worked on it for as long as you have, something that's very close to you, something that you, you wanted to see brought through to fruition. Yeah, totally. Um, I think I, I think it's starting to become really well documented about how, how, you know, how much of a problem it's becoming, particularly in men between the ages of 18 and 35. Um you know, male suicide rates and mental health issues in general. And I wanted to write this film because I felt it was important to approach this subject on a level. I think a lot of the time when people approach subjects like this, they can tend to talk down to men and not just men, men and women. And it can, you can sometimes come across as patronising. And I wanted to try and approach it from, from a level, you know, so people could maybe relate to it. And, um, you know, I, I drew on my own experiences with my own mental health, which I'm not going to lie, has not been perfect. And I also, you know, I, I, saw, I, I looked at the world around me. I looked at the things I knew about. Um, you know, I'm a massive boxing fan and I've been in and around boxing since I was a teenager. So um, I wanted to write this film and, yeah, I think... That, I mean, I went through a couple of drafts to, for it to get where it was, but uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of where the scripts are and most of the people that have read it have been really, really supportive of it, so that's good. It's currently on Indiegogo and yeah. it is, people can back it. Uh, you've got £5,430 raised, you only get to 15000 That's the previous Indiegogo account. Oh, go on, tell You've me got a new one. That's a new one. So actually, you might have, have you got the have you got the old one there or the new one? Uh, the new one's got one. about 250 quid. I saw the one today yeah. and I just thought it was a problem and I just yeah. that one now I thought oh, I've had a big afternoon yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's flown yeah, <laughs> um, yeah we've um, we've set a new one up the, the initial one we, we aim to raise somewhere in the ballpark of between 11 and 15 grand we raised five and a half which was brilliant you know I think I think like 150 people got got yeah. involved and put money towards it and we're really grateful for that and that got you through shooting it got the point is as you budgeted there quite clearly because the money you were trying to raise you yeah. need to raise another five grand or so in order to be able to do the post totally yeah we need to make sure that we can get it edited we need to make sure we can pay the composer so we can get the entire thing scored we need to make sure that we can properly sort the sound out so you know post production sound and so on and so forth and then there's festivals we want to go down the festival route with this definitely we've got a, we've got a cracking cast 
I'd yeah. take myself out of that boat. We've got who else have you got? Uh, we've got Faye Marseille. Um, she has been in Game of Thrones. Uh, she's been in quite a lot of feature films. She was in the. Oh, what else was she in? She was in Pride. Did you see yeah, Pride? Yeah, she was in Pride, yeah. She yeah. Pride. Pride's, Pride's, brilliant. Um, Pride's a magnificent piece of work. Yeah, and we've got Nigel Travis, who has been, who's, who's an actor and actually is a boxing trainer. Um, he's a cornerman for Carl Frampton, uh, Rocky Field and people like that, you know. So we've got, you know, they they both really believed in it um, and they wanted to get on board. And, you know, we think it looks, it looks, I mean, it looks gorgeous. It looks so. I, I know that's. I'm not, no, no, I don't no. want to. I can't express like how talented the team are behind it. Um, a lot of them are really young. Do you know what I mean? A lot of people working on this. It's the first chance that they've had, like to to do something with, to do something. And, and that's why you want to take it to the festival. Route. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, I was blown away when I seen the first, like the rushes, um, and you know what? What Phil, the director, and Matt, the DOP. I've done particularly with the cinematography is it's astounding and uh, I'm I'm just excited to see it. I want to get it finished now, yeah. So, um... <laughs> well, we'll tweet out the link and we'll make it aware of everyone aware. We'll make sure we've got the right one, not the old one. Yeah, uh, nice we'll one. get we'll nail that one. And people can yeah, but get involved, get stuck in. This stuff matters, and there's lots of stuff at the minute. I think that I feel as though is often crowdfunded for the wrong reasons. Uh, stuff that could well get get its funding from elsewhere. This is most definitely not the case with this. This is a legitimate small film project. I do I could honestly do an hour on how there is no money in small short films for anybody. Uh, <laughs> I, can, I can I can write I can write chapter and verse on the fact that there is no money in short films for anybody so short films do need to be supported because it is how so many young people get the opportunity to be able to do good work not just do work but do really good work as well this project is really good work a great theme and it does indeed look fantastic so thank you very much to Robbie uh, we will get over now we'll get back and we will talk about Liverpool versus Tottenham Hotspur or more accurately the other way around it is our weekend Neil Atkinson John Gibbons Alice McGovern Melissa Reddy and Robbie O'Neill Finishing off, looking ahead to Tottenham. Mel, before I cut you off uh, earlier on, going through part one, uh, you were talking about Spurs's Spurs's slightly strange last 11, 12 games, if we're quite honest about it. They've got the points on the board, but the performances haven't been great. They've also not been settled, anywhere near as settled as maybe we believe they are because they, they, they haven't bought anyone. Mm. But... They have got these... There's a lot of players in there who need to be accommodated for a little bit. Trippy is the latest now where there's weaknesses down this right-hand side, but he offers so much going forward. They go in and out of three at the back. There's not consistency in that. They don't seem entirely settled in the centre of the midfield. Ali is out for this one now. But, for instance, if he hadn't have been, he's got a selection headache between Mora, Eriksson, Ali and um, the, the, the uh, Son, coming back, uh, yeah. Son coming back. They... We sort of see Tottenham as this rock of solidity and maybe, just maybe, there's a manager walking around using a bit more gaffer tape than we're aware of. Yeah, I think noticeably, like you say, in the last 12 fixtures, that's become evident. Spurs have always, you know, as we use the phrase, Spursy, they've had those moments where they can revert to type that he's tried to rid them off. But in the last few months, so the end of last season and the start of this, as I mentioned before, you can see cracks that he is, and you can see him in, in terms of all the tinkering that he's doing. Both during games and prior to games, they played four at the back one, twice, sorry, they played four games, four at the back twice and three at the back twice. Exactly. So you can see him trying to navigate his way through um, these problems. And like you say, Trippier, he obviously wants to accommodate him because of... He's attacking brilliance. He offers them so much 
in that sense, you know, with set pieces and stuff. But that right-hand side has been a big weakness for them. I found it quite interesting as well that Pochettino's been very honest in terms of Spurs not being up to standard this season. He's said it a few times. And after the United game, where results can so often skew what actually happened in a game, that first half, United were excellent. In fact, the best I've seen United play for as far as I can remember. like Possibly you know, since in, we went there. Yeah, like in recent history, they were really good. Um, and Pochettino came out and said, we have to be careful of perception versus reality because the perception is that we're, you know, we're excellent and, and people are saying, why shouldn't we be the team challenging Manchester City when mm. the reality is we actually weren't good at all against United and we're lucky not to be 2-0, 3-0 down in the first half. And I think he's after Watford, he came out and said, we need a wake-up call, you know, being disrespectful to this competition. And all these things, I think he's trying to shake them out of a, a comfort zone of sorts or, uh, or the status quo or... And how much is that to do with having big players who are like, I mean, you know, it's not like, like other teams around them lack, you know, star quality. But how much is that about the people thinking, well... Our, our big names are just going to sort it out. It will all be all right. I, I don't know if it's so much in, in, in terms of that. I think, you know, okay, when you're looking at the end of last season, you're thinking perhaps fatigue is setting in. They went, uh, you know, further than they have previously in, in the Champions League. Uh, they've got a small squad. He prefers to work with a small squad. Um, and then at the start of the season, the first few games of the season are really difficult, especially coming off a major competition because your players are all, their levels of fitness are all over the place. Spurs had a lot of England internationals. Um, So I think it's tricky. You need a a larger sample size, I think, to to really know what their issues are. I I mean, you know, we've pinpointed areas that, that that they've had problems in. But I think what they also have is, one of their best players, Deli Ali, not playing this weekend, but he came from MK Dons, and like that, he was a senior player by virtue of how well he did in his first mm. and second season. So out of nowhere, he, you know, is this massive name, and you know there hasn't been that gradual step of getting there. And I think Pochettino mentions that they have to handle him really carefully. You know, the way they speak to him has changed because. He's dynamic within the squad has changed. And I think because of what Spurs are, because they want to create superstars rather than, you know, they don't go out and buy 70 million pound players. That dynamic is always changing for them because, you know, Mora is their player of the season for August and he wasn't being used previously. So I think that they're always in the shifting sort of pattern. Um but yeah, you know, the other issue is European clubs or bigger clubs look at Spurs and think, you know, as hard as Levy is to deal with and all that stuff and, you know, Spurs aren't a selling club and all those things that, that are being said. That are being play- said. <laughs> yeah, the players are not on on good wages in terms of, you know, their contemporaries, the people they go yeah. on national team duty with, uh, the other players that are considered the best in the league um 
And as, you know, progressive as they've been, they haven't won anything. Now, that for me is a gripe in terms of I hate when people say just win a trophy Mm -hmm. or I hate when successes boil down to something that you have to lift because it's not. There's so many other elements going on in modern football. But I think sometimes for players, if you have the oppor- if the opportunity is Barcelona or Real Madrid, there's only so long I think you can hold out until you know most players eventually give in. We saw it at Liverpool. Full Coutinho did it for five years until he was like, actually, I'm just gonna go over there and win some stuff now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I proved I'm a really good player. Now let me go and win some things. So I think that's the other issue. Tottenham have and it's just but I think until until they break through that they are not going to be seen as one of the kind of like for one of better expression European royalty of clubs mm. um I can feel Spurs fans like you know their hackles rising from here but it's I think it's true and that means that they'll have trouble keeping and attracting players so they've got a model that works around that but in the end, it's got its limitations. The, the big thing is what happens when or if Pochettino goes, because I think so many of these players are embedded to him uh, as him being the manager, because he has been so instrumental to a lot of their development. And when they speak about, you know, being selected for England, they all give credit to him. They say, you know, without Pochettino. And you've read accounts, and interestingly, Dejan Lovren has given Pochettino a watch again. Pochettino a watch like two years ago when he was already at Liverpool because he was his manager at Southampton saying, my footballing father. Adam Lallana still goes on about Pochettino. So he's this very positive, warming, intelligent influence that does improve players. So Almost a bit cloppy. Yeah. I think the issue is when he goes, because I think the buy-in that you have from the likes of Ali, Ericsson, and Kane is that, you know, yeah, this is a really exciting project with him, under him. Uh, But then the issue is when he goes. I think this weekend's an interesting one because it's meant to be the first game of the new stadium. And it's obviously not. It's at Wembley. And I wonder... I don't think look, I don't think it's gonna have a massive effect on this weekend, but I think it, it might start to have an effect the longer it goes on because I think they've pinned so much hope on this mm. new stadium in terms of that's the thing that's gonna push us on. That's the thing that's gonna be what Alison's talking about there, which is gonna be helping us start to get to yeah. an elite level club really. It's gonna boost them in terms of what they're able to bring in. You know, in terms of revenue, in terms of not just tickets, but obviously, it, it, I imagine it's been set up more around hospitality than they were able to do at White Hart Lane or the existing one, and so. I wonder, I think to, to, to a lot of it's been like, oh, when do we get the new stadium? When we get the new stadium and stuff like that? And, you know, everyone, every, all the whispers you hear say it's miles away. Yeah. And so they can say, oh, they can, you know, do it week by week as much as they want to then say, oh, right, oh, they were game in two weeks. So, you know, they're, they're doing it game by game at the moment, aren't they? Which I think is a mistake because I think they're better off just coming clean and saying, like, forget about it till till 2019. But the way they're doing it, I wonder whether that might start to hurt morale a bit just because they put so much focus on it. And I'm sure the fans aren't massively enjoying going to Wembley, but maybe at first it was a bit, like, novel. And then after a while, it was like, well, there's only a bit more to come. But that can start deflate the supporters as well. Players start wondering what's going on. And if the big move happens 
next season, which I think is possible. And by then, the manager's got a bit fed up and gone. Then it could be this big ta-da and there's no one there. You know what I mean? Like this big reveal and, you know, it, it, you know, someone gets to the nightclub and everyone's sweeping up type type thing. Do you know what I mean? And I think... I, I like, think like Arsenal were like, like kind of boxed in by the Highbury to Emirates yeah. thing for a while. Like it never really quite worked in the way that it was supposed to. It was supposed to like really help them and it never did. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, it does It does make me wonder how much of a bugbear it would have if you were a player. Yeah. I mean, the whole point of like of home advantage is comfort. Now, if you don't know where your home is from one week to the next, yeah. where, where, where does that leave you? And what does that say about the long-term planning? I mean, for a long time, personally, I, I used to look at Spurs and go, ah, you know, they, got, they, they seem to right be going the right yeah, direction, yeah. you know. Um, before Klopp came in, I wasn't looking at us in that way. But now... I'm like, actually, it's as though they've hit a brick wall. Not, I mean, obviously, they're still playing well. They're still doing well. But there seems to be a bit of stasis there. And obviously, you know, if you stand still for too long, you get left behind. Um, and that's why I think this Saturday for both teams is actually a massive is a massive game. I think it's a bigger, is as big a game for Spurs as it is for us, actually. I think I really yeah. definitely yeah, so. I really do. Because we've got big games to come anyway. So, like, if, if, if we lose, we won't be happy, but we'll be thinking about PSG. Uh, they do have Milan uh, but yes PSG is the biggest game in Europe on Tuesday night and if Liverpool win that one then everyone will be talking about how good the Reds are but they do have Milan and this is where John Ali not playing for England midweek and now being ruled out I'd be desperate to play Son I'd have been desperate to play Son if I was them anyway I think he's absolutely magic full stop but uh, they're saying supposedly they were going to rest him. Now, they're not rested anyone else since the World Cup Uh, I know Son's had to go, go off and do the Mad Asia Games thing but I'd be playing him. I'm, I'm expecting to see him for all the talk of he's not going to come, he's not going to play, he's not yeah, going to play. Th- I'm expecting to see him. I th- I thought he, he was going to play. Speaking of, speaking of that that uh, mad thing that Son's been doing though, if anyone knows where I can get that North Face tracky top that the South Korean lads were wearing, it's absolutely <laughs> absolutely mustard. But yeah, he, 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 honestly, Google it and then email me if you can find it. I'll, I'll take a black one from China. I'm not proud. Um, yeah, what are we talking about? Yeah, so I, I think with the early thing, they, they might be tempted to throw him back in. And I think that was maybe, you know, ahead of looking at what they've, what they've come. He, he might have been able to do I don't know when he's gone back to training in, in space. Wednesday. But, so, he, so he's had a few days there, hasn't he? So they might be a bit tempted now with this news. But but Mel mentioned Lucas Moura before, and I thought he was a very clever sign. And when they got him, and it didn't quite happen for him at first, it can be difficult joining the season halfway through, especially when we're... Well, I was going to say a settled as Tottenham, but you've all had me off on that, so I won't, I won't say that. But, you know, just coming to a new league yeah. and, and all that. So, But I think, you know, he, he's always been a very good footballer and I think he's, he's showing that now. And so they will have whatever 11 they put on the pitch will be will be a good team. You know, the balance might not be quite what it will, what they want it to be, but there's going to be good players you can hear. You know, Liverpool are going to have to play well to beat them. I would say better than we've played so far this season. Yeah, you know, for as much as we have spoke, uh, speaking about Tottenham and that Tottenham haven't really played well this season, I don't think Liverpool have been Liverpool yet Mm. Uh, in terms of everything coming together. I think that it's really good. You know, when I was talking about um, psychology earlier, it's great that Liverpool have seen we can play ugly and win, we can grind it out and win, we can go to tough grounds and do the business. Uh, We don't need our front three to win us every game. We don't need to score four goals in order, you know, to, or to be safe, we can keep a 1-0 or there's all these things that they need to experience, that they need to know that they can do. And for them to have done it 
four games at the start of the season to get four points, concede one goal that, you know, doesn't actually come about so much by the opposition, but it's our own undoing that goal. Um, yeah, I think there, there'll be a lot of enthusiasm, but also a lot of reality in the fact that Liverpool haven't actually played very well. I think defensively they have, but they haven't caught light yet. Are you expecting any surprise in selection? And by that, what I mean is, are you expecting a team that that's selected that isn't one of the... There's been two teams that's played the four games. There's the one that played the first three, and then there's the Henderson in, one that played game four. Are you expecting any significant changes off, off, off either of those sides? I can't see too many, I think. When I look at it, the only question is, which three does he go for in midfield? I think James Milner is pretty nailed on, especially since... You know, he will have been there for the entire international break. Um, and then it's what... What two from the other three? Yeah, I, I think I think Naby Keita should play. Um, and then it's a matter of what six do you want? Do you want a more disciplined um, number six or do you want the number six who's more adept at, at tempo setting and doing the all, you know, being all things to all men? Um, so yeah, I, I think a lot of it, you know, they'll look at at now Spurs not having Ali. That will tinker with with what Jurgen's planning to do. But you're and, expecting the same back four, the same front three. Yeah, I don't expect any changes. Anyone, anyone expect any changes? Speak now. No. No, no it's eleven or twelve, isn't it? Yeah. It's eleven. Eleven from twelve uh, with the three in midfield sorting all that out. Uh, what constitutes a good day, Alison? A win. Only a win. Yeah. If Liverpool play well and draw, that's not a good day. I'm happy with playing uh, I, well and drawing here. Um, I think that points, that early points help. So I think where we get to by Christmas is quite critical for the big one. If we're going to play well and draw, then that's like, okay, so how does, how, how, how in this period before Christmas are we maximising all of our opportunities if we're going to play well and draw would be my question. Okay. Um, what constitutes a good day? A win, but like you, I wouldn't be. It wouldn't be the end of the world, especially with the run of fixtures coming up. If if it was a draw, however, Liverpool have gotten into the habit of winning when they haven't actually been playing so well, which is a good habit. That is an excellent habit. Yeah, I, yeah, I know, I know. I don't want to revert to to the one of oh, Liverpool played smashingly well there, but they didn't win. You know, don't want to go back there. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I'd you know I'd have always said a point at Spurs is fine, but you know you've just told me that Man City battered them twice last season, Absolutely so you destroyed them. So you've got in my head what, now. What they did to on the sixteenth of December, what Manchester City did to Tottenham, won them the league if the league wasn't already won. It's one of the great Premier League performances of all time. So you've got in my head now. There you on are that a little bit. Yep. So um, you've so. answered your own question. Mind you. <laughs> but play, play brilliantly and win. <laughs> yeah, that is that is always a good day. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as well, like it would. Make a statement, but then is making a statement that important? I don't know. Do we really care what the rest of the league? But there's a flip side of this, which I, is I, nice. sometimes like, it's nice to be a bit of a secret. Like, exactly like Mel, I'm like, I'm like, fine with play rubbish, just win. 
there's, there's something in for me. It's all about where you are on, on October the 7th when City turn up at Anfield because what we don't want to be is two points behind them and then if they win at Anfield, they're five clear and we've yeah. still got to go to their place. And exactly. that, I, I, am not, I am not at home to that. Exactly. <laughs> I'm exactly. a bit concerned about the fluidity though. Like, I mean, I think the quicker we get our fluidity back, the better because yeah. I do think a lot of the time the reason we find ourselves a bit behind is because our performances can be a bit disjointed and we seem to pick up after Christmas. If we can get our fluidity back quicker this season, I think... I think we'll have, we'll be better off. In the As in, like, because you have the break and people just don't look like they're communicating as well as they should be. And yeah. yeah. I just think, like, particularly with the last three or four games, I thought the West Ham game spoke for itself, but, you know, we've won. Um, it's been great, as we say, to win, to win rough or dirty, whatever you want to say, or you, however you want to say it. But I'd just like to see that panache back because I think that panache puts the fear of God into people of course although we say sorry about although we say it's nice to win playing badly you can't continue yeah. forever but yeah. eventually yeah. like exactly. you know you just you just team is not playing yeah. well I think it, it I think it returns automatically really uh, you know Jürgen was saying that the start of the season was practically an extension of, of pre-season so they were still doing really grueling training sessions and stuff and that stops now with, with the amount of games coming up so what you do on the pitch itself is going to be there's going to be more focus on that than what you're doing in training uh, very quick one word win lose or draw Mel win 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 Draw. Oh. It has been the weekend to be my favourite so far. An absolute ball. Thank you very much indeed to Robbie, to Mel, to Alison, and to John. Take it easy, whatever you do in this weekend. Look forward to the football being back and back in earnest. I will see you in any bar you like in Liverpool City Centre at six thirty on Saturday. Sports Social Podcast Network.